Good evening, good evening to you, you. Good evening, good evening to you, you. Good evening, good evening, won't you share with a friend or two? Good evening, good evening to you, you. Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope you're having a great and wonderful day. This is Daring Dialogues, and I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. We've got a couple of things that we're going to be talking about tonight, and we are going to start off with the topic of green flags in relationships green flags in relationships. I've been reading up on relationships all day from different perspectives and I wanted to share this because I felt like it was pretty good. Um, They can always be expounded upon. This comes from the IG page R29 Unbothered and it is green flags on first time dates. Now, I'm not a whole big fan of dating. I am a fan of courtship, but we know that you start somewhere, right? By some kind of introduction, usually a outing of some kind, right? Some people call it a date, depending on how you relate to people. Some people call it just a gathering. Some people go one one by one, you know, on a alone kind of gathering, And some people say, hey, we're going to do this in a group and I'm not going anywhere alone with you. So it depends on how you do that. But I thought these were very good in terms of green flags. We often focus on red flags, but what are some green flags? What are some good signs of a person that you might want to be in a relationship with? So... Here they go. Number one, being on time. There is nothing worse than setting aside time to be with someone, to share your life, right? To engage them beyond a general conversation than to schedule a time to be with them and they don't show up or they show up really, really late, or they show up really, really late without an explanation and they just expect you to sort of get over it. But it's a green flag when they can show up on time. Number two, clear communication. 
believe it or not, I would probably say one of the most important things to keep a relationship going is clear communication. And if they're starting off with clear communication, they're given the who, what, when, where, why, how, and they're able to clearly communicate that, that is a good sign. You don't want someone who does not communicate, who goes silent, who goes, um, who's not clear about where we're going, what time should I be there, how long is this going to take, uh, who's paying, who's not paying, are we going Dutch, clear communication is a good sign. Number three, respectful of your boundaries. Here's a boundary. I want to be home by a certain time. That time is getting near. You're looking at your watch. They're looking at their watch. You're saying, hey, it's getting it's getting close to the time where I, where I need to be home. And they say, oh, come on. Can't you stay out another hour or two? No. Respectful of boundaries. Whatever those boundaries you're setting, if that person is respectful of them, that is a green flag. Number four, kind to people who are in service, waiters, doormen, etc. If they are rude to the waiter, rude to the doorman, rude to the service workers, that is not a good thing. But if you notice that they're kind to anybody, regardless of their station or their status, that is a green flag. Lastly, number six, genuine interest in you outside of what you can do for them. Um, If you listen close enough, you can sort of figure out people who are just trying to figure out what you can do for them in a relationship. If all of the questions that they're asking you are sort of like, what do you do for a living? What's your income? What do you drive? (laughs) Where do you live? Like those kinds of questions, you can kind of gauge whether or not a person is kind of like looking at you as a meal ticket (laughs) versus looking at you as an actual person of interest. Okay. So just wanted to share those with you. Um, the other subject I looked at today was normalizing trauma. Um, in season nine, we started looking at a book on trauma, which we're going to probably dive into on next week. And, uh, this particular book that has to do with trauma is, um, what happened to you written by, uh, Oprah Winfrey, um, and, and a, uh, psychotherapist, I believe. Um, But I want to look at a couple things that people say to normalize trauma. And this comes from the IG page, a black female therapist. Things people say to normalize trauma. And I read these today and I was like, yep, they I've heard just about all of them. Now, the key is not allowing what people say that tends to normalize trauma to affect how you decide to deal with and heal from your own trauma. Here's one of the things that people say to normalize trauma. It made me stronger. Well, there's a lot of ways that you can be made stronger without going through traumatic events. I know 
Some people don't realize that, but it's true. There are ways to build yourself that does not have to do with going through something super traumatic that you have to go to therapy and counseling for. Here's another thing that people say to normalize trauma. You should have said something when you had the chance. Wow. Really? I think about the trauma that um, Maya Angelou shared in her younger days and how um, her trauma of child sexual abuse took her into a space of not talking. I think she said for like five years. Well, would she have been able to say something at that point? Sometimes we got to we got to evaluate what people are saying to us. Another thing that people say sometimes to normalize trauma, that's how I was raised. Hmm. Well, what if you were raised to act like an animal? Again, there's another book out. I can't remember, recall the name of it, but it's a, uh, gentleman and it's like several different volumes where he talks about how he was raised as a child and I think it's called I think it may be called the thing called it and his family basically kind of raised him in a very animalistic way that wasn't normal but that was how he was raised so again you want to evaluate those kinds of statements how that's how I was raised Was how you were raised right? Was it humane? Was it in a safe environment? Was it healthy? Right? So you don't want to dismiss the things that you might have endured as a child simply because you were raised that way. Something else that people say to normalize trauma. I turned out fine. (laughs) Now, I often hear this one from people whose parents were very physically abusive to them. And they'll say, I turned out fine. My parents beat me with all kinds of objects and I turned out fine. I'm like, no, you didn't. (laughs) Um, Because you're trying to justify that physical abuse by saying, I turned out fine. Well, you didn't turn out fine because of the abuse. You turned out fine in spite of the abuse, not because it was good for your body or your brain. Something else that people say to normalize trauma, this is between family. Well, if your family is very dysfunctional or has been operating in patterns of behavior that's harmful, Keeping it between your family could be a serious detriment, not only to your mental health, but even to the children that you will have in the future and bring into that dysfunctional family. Because if you keep saying this kind of abuse is between family, then that means future family members can experience the same kinds of abuse and no one will say anything about it because it's between family. Something else people say to normalize trauma, it happened so long ago. Guess what? No matter how long ago it happened, you still have the ability to seek out counsel and to seek therapy. One thing that we do know about trauma is that trauma 
can be addressed. It can be reversed. Um, Due to certain therapeutic practices, you can rewire your brain. So this is what we know about the science of it now. So even though it happened a long time ago, it doesn't mean that it's not something that doesn't need to be addressed. Something else that people say to normalize trauma, I got over it. Well, how did you get over it? Did you get over it by suppressing it or did you get over by addressing it? That's really important to think about and consider. And here's another one. Things people say to normalize trauma, time heals all wounds. Does it? Does time just heal the wound? Or again, does addressing it heal it? Does talking about it heal it? Does facing the factors that brought you into that trauma heal it? Does facing the person who brought on that trauma heal it? Does going through therapy heal it? So it's not just necessarily time that heals all wounds. And lastly, things people say to normalize trauma, you learn from it, right? Yeah, you might have learned from it. But again, do we have to learn simply through trauma? Is trauma the only way that people learn? Is that what we're saying in today's society? I would hope not. I would hope that sometimes we can just learn through um, other people's experiences. We can learn through doing the right thing. We can learn by developing healthy habits for our life. Why does it have to be I learned from the trauma? Yes, we can learn from it, but that's not the only way that we should be learning. So I want to share those with you. Now, I'm going to hop over and grab the book that I was looking at earlier today. We're still talking about the subject of relationships. And I found this book at my local library. I'm still considering whether or not I'm going to um, invest in my own copy. But this is called Anti-Racist Ally, An Introduction to Activism and Action by Sophie Williams, who can be found on IG as Official Millennial Black. And I'm reading from the section called Become an Ally at Home and in Your Communities. She says, in terms of building a relationship to become an ally, our life at home and the communities we're a part of are spheres where we have the most potential for real impactful change. Families have a much greater chance of changing each other's minds and impacting actions than people we don't know. Communities, unless built carefully and conscientiously from the ground up, will reflect and mirror the societies in which they're built which means they center around whiteness, even if it's subconsciously. This is an area where you have the potential to make real change, real impact, even if it feels uncomfortable or daunting at first. Racism is not for children. When we say racism isn't a topic for and doesn't affect children, 
What we really mean is racism isn't a topic for white children because white children are largely unaffected by it. This is a privilege that marginalized people do not have because society treats marginalized children differently from the very start of their lives. In fact, many marginalized children experience the impact of medical bias and racism even before the start of their lives. Black mothers are five times more likely and Asian mothers are twice as likely to die in childbirth than white women, impacting the family structures of many marginalized families before they have had the chance to begin. In the UK, structural racism means that 46% of uh, their children live in poverty compared to just 26% of children in white British families. Racism most certainly touches the lives of non-white people from their very earliest moment, which means if you're going to be an ally in your community and in your home, education about racism is absolutely essential. Here's something else that leads into that question. Some people say, well, my children are too young to understand. Children start learning about race from a surprisingly young age. I know for me, I knew I was different at four years old. (laughs) When there is no conversation about the topic at home, when there is no conversation, they are left to form their own thoughts around it whether via TV, friends, or the wider society, which if left unchallenged or discussed, turns into belief and bias by the time they reach adulthood. From three months old, babies are more drawn to faces that match the race of their parents or their caregivers. Why is this important? Because if you only have faces around your child that match yours, then when they see a face that does not match yours, they tend to kind of clam up. Sometimes they might be afraid. Sometimes they might start crying. From the age of two and a half, children begin to use race as a factor in deciding who to play with. Did you hear that? Two and a half years old, children begin to use race as a factor in deciding who to play with. Between four and five years old, learn racism is at its peak in children. Though by the time they reach five years old, black and Latinx children don't show a preference towards their own racial groups, white children do. Showing strong biases in favor of whiteness, as well as having learned to associate some racial groups with a higher social standing than others. Whether we want to realize it or not, our children form these views from the society they live in. When we don't discuss and challenge these views, we pave the way for the continuation of the same issues that we face today. Hence, hashtag get you some black friends. (laughs) Because 70% of white Americans do not have any black friends. Is that going to affect how your child views and sees black people? Yes, it will. Because if you don't have any black friends in your circle of of community, then they are taking their cues from the very, very, very uh, obvious stereotypes that happen through television and media. So yes, you should do some direct teaching 
And a part of that direct teaching is including black people in your life. Here's one more. My parents are too old to change. Older people do not get a free pass to perpetuate racism, even if their beliefs are deeply rooted and long held. Marginalized people never get too old to be discriminated against. Take time to explain your point of view to older people in your family and community. Use opportunities across the media that you consume and use the news cycles to start conversations that you may not have had before. If these are new conversations, the people you're talking to may not even be aware that your beliefs are any different to their own or how important this is to you. Change isn't immediate. It can be long and frustrating, but every one of us has our actions impacted by our beliefs and those actions go on to influence the society that we live in. Most of us are not exactly the same person we were five or 10 years ago. You've learned and grown as a person in your life and others can do the same. It's just about finding the best way to reach them. Everyone matters regardless of how old or how young they are. Talk to the existing leaders around you. Start with a mental audit of the additional communities that you are a part of. Consider how diverse these organizations are and what their leadership demographics look like. Are they representative of the racial breakdown of society as a whole? If not, it's time to examine the structural reason that may be preventing equal access to everyone. If the communities that you're a part of are not representing society, you can start by simply addressing that with those who are in positions of power within them. Ask if they have noticed the inequity, and if so, what they are doing to address it. You can offer to support them in their efforts or take ownership of areas where your skills lie to push for change more easily and effectively. I was having a conversation with a uh, parent today that I was advising, and one of the things that was pointed out is that in education, about 80% or maybe even a little higher than that of public school teachers are white and female. But yet, the majority of students in public schools are black, indigenous people of color. This is an inequity because the leadership leading children in public schools does not actually reflect proportionate wise the demographics of which they're leading. This is causing lots of cultural misunderstanding and cultural miscues, causing black indigenous people of color, children to be penalized far more greater than their peers. So what is this country going to do about this inequity? That's a huge question that's on the table. Another and final thing here before I open up for uh, discussion, become a leader. If leaders in your community are not willing to address racism or equity, consider if you or someone you know can challenge their position, particularly if it's an elected role with a fixed term. Just as we can impact the shape of politics by running for seats in, a, in elected office, we can impact the smaller communities that we're a part of. It may also be possible to make internal subgroups 
to ensure that anti-racism remains on the agenda and the work that is needed is able to happen. Lastly, lobby lawmakers. The democratic process can seem impossibly far away, too far away to touch or influence. I promise you that is not the case. We live in a representative democracy and because of social media, elected officials are now at the touch of your keyboard. They cannot block you. Public officials cannot block citizens because that's who they are here to serve. Elected officials are voted in by you and me to represent and serve the needs of their constituents. There are a lot of ways to engage in tackling racial, social, and educational inequality in your community. You can do this by reaching out to your local officials, by writing letters and emails, by tweeting at them, by tagging them through social media, making email templates for others who are time crunched. So I thought those were very good uh, points for those who are trying to be anti-racist allies, those who are trying to build their relationship with black indigenous persons of color. All right. So we've covered a lot tonight. We've covered green flags. We've covered things that people say to normalize trauma. And we've also covered um, anti-racist allyship. What are some practical things that you can do? If you would like to come on screen and be a part of the conversation tonight, or you uh, want to respond to the readings tonight, please feel free to hit the camera and I will bring you on. If you are listening by... Uh, podcast tonight. I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues and I'm your host tonight, Shante Charles. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light. Also hit me with a voicemail to respond to this podcast. Take care. God bless.